catch those springtime vibes all over Arizona. Break out of the winter blues by hitting the water at one of our lake and river parks. Take a hike among the wildflowers. Just make sure to stay on the trails and leave the flowers for the bees. Discover Arizona's best kept secret and visit azstateparks.com slash amazing to start your springtime adventure. Other horn is going. Everything that we do every day, we want to be a champion. Get your mind right and let's go. Do the little things. Win every day. It's a surplus big place so far. Everything with an attitude. Got a family. I don't give a shit who we're playing. Don't let play against them. And make it play. That's our framework. That's our MO with the team. Richardson breaks free on the sideline. This is a mauling, folks, a mauling. Fear the tide, honey badger. Hello and welcome to another edition, a catch-up edition of the Alabama Football Podcast. You got Dave riding solo here, and we're actually going to do two shows. Uh, We've got about 10 topics that we're going to step through, little off-season topics. We're going to wrap up last season. We're going to talk about some off-season stuff, and we're going to project forward. Uh, We're actually going to do this in two parts. So we're going to record a couple of topics uh, here up front and uh, get that posted out to you guys, and then we're going to come back a couple days later and release a second show. So we've had this dry spell, no podcast, and you're about to get two of them uh, pretty close uh, back-to-back. The first topic, I'm not going to run through all the topics. I'm not going to tease you with what we're going to talk about. I'm just going to promise that uh, that we've got some good stuff coming up. And uh, what we're going to start off uh, first is we're going to do some recap uh, of the Michigan game. And I know that's a little bit of a dated topic, and that's sort of the nature of our our show, right? Our topics get dated pretty quickly, and uh, you know we've been a little bit negligent of of getting back on the mic. There were a couple of times I thought we were about to do it, we were going to do it, and just the schedules didn't work out. And uh, here we are. We're going to put on a recap of the Michigan game. I think this was a really big win for the program. Uh, I think it was a big win for Alabama football in in total. Uh, it was. I know it wasn't the playoff, and that's aggravating, and that's frustrating, and it's the first year of the playoff that it didn't have an Alabama team, and I don't like that any more than the rest of you. Uh, but to have not gone to the playoffs, to have an opportunity to play Michigan, uh, a, a name-brand program, a blue-blood program, on a January 1st, kind of like old school, right, uh, for those of us that that are old school. Uh, this kind of felt like that. This kind of felt like a, a back in time where you wake up on January 1st and football matters on January 1st in a way that it hasn't for Alabama uh, the last several seasons. And and obviously we'd rather be in the playoffs. We'd rather be winning national titles. I'm not disparaging any of that, trust me. But this was sort of a neat experience. And so to get to play a, a true blue blood on a January 1 first uh, bowl game, I think that's awesome. Uh, to have the opportunity to beat uh, Jim Harbaugh, that's a lot of fun too. And certainly it was a big uh, convincing win. And so what we're going to do is we're going to step through. Format will be the same. We'll talk about offense and mini game ball, and then we'll do defense and mini game ball, and we'll talk about special teams. Uh, but we're going to do that in, in, you know, sometimes that's an hour show, an hour and a half show, depending upon uh, the game. And if Tommy and I were doing this together fresh, yep, this probably be about an hour, 20 minutes. But you got Dave riding solo. Uh, weeks, uh, months after the game. Uh, today is March 1st when I record. So yes, two months to the day. Uh, what we're going to do is we're going to step through this uh, much in a much more fluid fashion. We're going to hit some highlights uh, and um, 
see where that takes us. I think there's some interesting topics that sort of do have a forward. Uh, um, there's a, it's an inflection point, and a bowl game always is, especially you know of this nature. There's going to be some topics that lend themselves on a carry forward. There are going to be some topics that are reflective of of the season that we're passing through. We'll have sort of a mix of that, uh, but we won't spend 90 minutes on it. We'll kind of step through this. If I said 10 minutes, it'll be 20, and if I say 20, it'll be 30. So I'm not going to put a time box on it. I'm just going to walk us through uh, some thoughts, some observations, some opinions here. And uh, when we're done with topic one, we're done with topic one. And so let's start off. Alabama taking the wind out of Michigan sales, 35 to 16. And uh, I'm just going to kind of bullet this out. Normally, it's sort of a round-robin conversation with Tommy, and I'm going to bullet this out much like I do in other solo shows. And uh, one of the things that really stood out to me was uh, Mac Jones. He was 16 of 25 from a percentage standpoint. That's not spectacular, but he racked up 327 yards, three touchdowns. And I'm going to tell you what, we'll tell you what, he's had three 300-yard games in his four starts, and he's averaging right at uh, 300 yards in his four starts. Uh, the one start that he was shy of 300 uh, was actually Western Carolina, and I think he threw for 275. We did not need him to throw for 300 uh, to win that game. And so, you know, you could reason that he's, you know, three of three for 300 uh, yards. If you discount the Western Carolina, if you want to say three of four for 300 yards, that's pretty darn impressive too. Three of these are name brand programs. Um, Arkansas, I know they they were bad this year. What do we see on the podcast? They suck like a straw. Uh, I think that's true, but it's still an SEC program that was his first start, and he threw for over three. Uh, Western Carolina, we could have taken him out almost at any point in that game, uh, but the fact that he threw for a lot of yards in that game. Uh, Auburn, I hated losing that game most certainly, but Mac had a really good game. I know there were a couple of pick sixes there, and certainly you can go back and listen to, to that podcast and the full breakdown there, but I thought he acquitted himself quite well in that game. And hey, that was a name brand uh, Auburn defense, especially across the defensive front. And of course, Michigan, they got a lot of credit. Uh, it points through this season for having a stout defense. And in a bowl game setting where the Wolverines could have really stacked up uh, to compete against Mac, he put up another really good day, 327, like I said, three touchdowns. And I know there's a lot of excitement about quarterback uh, this next season. Mac Jones is going to be your starter. Let's just write that down. Let's just accept that. Uh, that doesn't mean Bryce isn't going to play. That's a different topic. That's another uh, That's another conclusion. But the conclusion that I'm drawing is that Mac's going to be the starter and he will play well. And we should be excited and pleased uh, about that. Uh, running through some other players, Najee Harris was just lights out uh, during this game. Uh, ran uh, 24 touches for a uh, buck 36, uh, 5.7 average with two touchdowns. And if we had recorded this right after the game, I would have said in I would have said conclusively that he's going pro. That this was the the cherry on top of his ice cream Sunday season. Uh, he had a spectacular season, went 1,200 yards, and that this was the dollop on top, uh, and that he would leave. And what, in fact, what's happening, and he is he's coming back, and I think that's exciting. We're going to talk about that when we talk about departures and returnees. Uh, but the fact that Najee is coming back, I think, is is something that we can uh, we can be pleased with. We can be excited about. And we can look for him to have even a more exciting season, maybe not more productive, and we'll talk about that, but a more exciting season uh, in his senior campaign. And uh, we're certainly glad to welcome him back. Uh, Brian Robinson, on the other hand, was uh, almost nowhere to be found. He had three carries for 16 yards 
And, you know, at the time I, I wrote a big question mark next to that. And I still have a big question mark uh, next to it. Uh, I think at one point, uh, I think this is actually in a bonus show and I'm sorry, I'm not trying to be jerky when I reference that. Uh, but there was about a two hour uh, bonus show that we, uh, that we did get out talking about the recruiting season and the early signees. And, and this was before the, uh, the, the February uh, signees. And so we made a lot of predictions, some of which have come true, some of which we still think are. And if you've not part of uh, getting the bonus programs, I'm going to tell you it's not too late and it's still worth uh, the, um, uh, the, you know, the, the minimal $10 cost to get in because we're still going to release a lot of those. We'll talk about that later. But one thing that we did talk about, we did ask sort of rhetorically, is what's wrong with Brian Robinson? And the fact that he only had three carries for 16 yards in the bowl game uh, for the season, I thought he had disappointing numbers. And and I kind of predicted that it's going to come out after the season that he's having surgery or something. And I've not heard that. I've not seen that. doesn't mean it's not true. It just means it's um, it just means it hasn't come out yet. I think it probably would. As we get closer to spring practice, we're going to learn a little bit more. Uh, I predicted that there was a chance that uh, Brian Robinson would leave the program when we talk about his role, and, uh, and and it wasn't nearly what we all thought it would be this season. And so I thought he either had a n- nagging injury or that that he was going to leave the program. And so far, it's been neither. We've had another running back leave, um, Jerome Ford, but uh, Brian Robinson has not. And so what's interesting, we'll get into spring, spring practice is another season, another mark on the calendar when players do tend to leave if they're going to. And so coming out of spring drills with Najee being back, which probably Brian didn't expect either, uh, with Najee being back, with Trey Sanders coming back uh, from injury, and then a couple of the uh, the signees uh, being available for spring, it'll be interesting to see how that deck is shuffled, how Keelan, where he lands sort of in the sequence and where Brian Robinson lands in the sequence as well. And so I'm not saying he's out yet, uh, but I'm saying I'm not saying he's back for 2020 yet. And I still have a big question next to Brian Robinson. I love Brian Robinson. I hope he comes back. I hope he earns a niche. I hope he earns a role, a spot. But uh, there's, there's definitely some question there. And his performance, the his amount of playing time, I, this is not attack on the individual. Uh, it's more the, the question around the circumstance. His lack of opportunity. You know, three for 16 is not bad. He's averaging five, but only three and only 16. Uh, those are the questions I have. And so I would have expected him. Uh, I would have expected, you know, Najee and, and Rob to both about have, you know, 75, 80 yards each, you know, not 136 and 16. Um, so at any rate, Jerry Judy, holy moly, six catches, 204. And just from the jump, uh, he had that long 70, 75 yard uh, touchdown. Um, just amazing. I thought it was amazing that, that Jerry was the star. Uh, there was some question: Would he play in this game because he's you know going to the NFL? And would he play in this game? And and I love his reaction. He said, "Why would I not play in this game? I'd never thought of not playing in this game." And for him to go out and just you know put a bow on his his Alabama career uh, is is just amazing. Truly uh, a favorite uh, player for you know for Alabama fans, and his production is just outstanding. And so the fact that he had you know two oh four. On this day, that's just amazing. Uh, Smitty, uh, I thought I, I thought he was impressive. He had big catches. He didn't have many. He had three for fifty six, and of his fifty six, one came on a touchdown pass coming out of half for forty two yards. But his catches were big time. 
Uh, that touchdown coming out of half was big. It was still a close game at that point. Uh, Alabama sent most of the first half behind. And so to come out at half and just put uh, an exclamation mark on, hell yeah, we're ready to play. We're going to win this game. And here's, uh, you know, here here's our first sort of uh, stamp on that. Uh, and I think his other two catches, I want to say they went for first downs. They certainly were big plays in the context of the game. Uh, Miller Forrestall, three catches for 36. That's probably a, a high number, uh, high numbers for him o- over the season. I didn't look up to validate, uh, but he did have a touchdown as well. Uh, it was a really nice touchdown for Forrestall. Again, another point in the game where it was nice to see Alabama put point, uh, points on the board. And then Jaleel Billingsley, we'll talk about as we talk about, and again, I'm a reference man. That two-hour show is just, for me, was just meaty, action-packed stuff. I'm going to tell you, I think that's worth the $10 right there because there's some stuff in there. And we did talk about uh, Jaleel. Uh, I think he's one of the players for me that has a, a tremendous amount of upside uh, when we think about the 2020 season. I think he can, he can be the type of player that can, you know, air quotes, come from nowhere and really be a contributor in 2020, especially with some of the shifting from we've got some receivers that are leaving and so we're going to need an outlet for those receptions. And I think Jaleel, man, just watch out. Uh, but he recorded his second career catch um, against Michigan. And so, again, that just jumped out to me. Uh, if we're going to go mini game balls on uh, on offense, I'm giving to Ruggs and uh, to Waddle. Ruggs had two catches. Waddle had one. We can't have the last game of the season in which we don't spend a moment in <laughs> I don't mean a moment of silence, but just a moment where we talk about the riches of Jerry Judy, uh, Devontae Smith, Henry Ruggs, and Jalen Waddell, just the four of those players at once. Um, that, that that never happens, right? I mean, these are once in some of these, well, I don't know, who do you re- remove? These four guys are once in a career players, right? This is, this is like having Amari Cooper and Calvin Ridley and um, – and Julio Jones on the same team, right? This is the caliber of player. Uh, Jerry Judy and Henry Ruggs may be two of the top three receivers chosen in the NFL draft. Um, Waddle's as talented as any of those guys. He just is a year behind and can't go pro. And Smitty is one of the more productive. Uh, he has an opportunity, Smitty does, to finish. If he has a season, uh, a senior season, he could finish as Alabama's most decorated wide receiver. That's just amazing. That, but that's how talented and productive uh, that he is, and uh, and so you think about those four guys, just how what a challenge they have been for uh, for defenders uh, and for defenses over this last season and really over the last two seasons. And you think about uh, and really Rugs and and Waddle are getting the, uh, the the mini game ball here because of their contributions. They were still out there blocking. They were still out there running the routes and running the plays, and they didn't get thrown to. But it's just, it was in 2019, what was just amazing is the depth and the rotation and the fluidity in which, you know, we've had Amari Cooper. He was the guy, you know, and, and he might have 12 passes in a, in a game, 12 receptions in a game because he was, you know, the passing offense. But with these four guys, it just rotated. It just rotated. Smitty had a couple uh, a 200-yard games. I think he had a five-touchdown game. Waddle just lit Auburn's ass up, and he gets – one catch against Michigan is is just the fluidity of where the passes are going to go. There's still going to be passes, but where they go and who gets them 
and who has the, the all-star day, it rotated. It just rotated, and everyone was cool with it. It's just amazing. You don't see that. And so uh, the fact that Jerry Judy was the star of that day does, do, does not diminish the star of the other players. And so that's my rant on the wide receivers, and that's my minigame ball, Rugs and Waddle. <clears throat> defense, uh, you know, the defense – Zero points in the second half. And so someone's put their foot down and said, look, enough of this. We're going to shut them out the rest of the game. And um, we held them to 160, held uh, the Wolverines to 162 yards, you know, 43 rushing attempts. So they were trying to control uh, the clock there a little bit, but they only had a 3.8 average, which is not uh, a winning average. Hmm. Zero points in the second half, a dominant defensive performance. Is that foreshadowing? of a topic we may spend time with. Why, yes. Why, yes, it is. Uh, Xavier McKinney uh, had just an incredible day. Ten tackles, had himself a sack. Uh, Anthony Jennings, where, buddy, has this game been? Ten, ten tackles on the day. Uh, I know he has um, had some injuries throughout his career. I was glad that he came out and played in this game and certainly glad that he contributed the way that he did. Uh, he's a player, and he and Terrell uh, almost sort of uh, injury plagued uh, careers that they had. And I hate that because, you know, they were the type of bookends that, you know, Alabama fans sort of dream of. And they never really quite got there. I wish they were sophomores this year so they could come back and really put it all together. Uh, but, uh, you know, but that time has passed. Wish them both well in future endeavors in the NFL. But the fact that Anthony came out and had himself 10 tackles, uh, he put it on the line. Uh, that day and uh, certainly put up some good numbers. Uh, Shane Lee and Christian Harris, they both finished with nine tackles. Uh, how fitting is that? Shane Lee had himself a sack. Uh, Christian Harris had himself a pass deflection uh, and two tackles for a loss. Uh, that's darn impressive. You know, there's going to be those that are out there, and hopefully not many amongst our listeners, uh, but I think there are fans out there that think that <clears throat> Shane Lee and Christian Harris didn't improve much, and they use that as a reason to get mad at particular coaches. More foreshadowing? Yes. But if you didn't see Shane Lee and Christian Harris uh, develop over the course of the 2019 season, I don't know what you're watching. You might be watching that Duke game uh, again on every week rewind because their progression over the course of the season and uh, was, was definitely obvious. It was definitely apparent. And we talked about it uh, on the podcast. Did they, did they finish the season at, you know, Reuben Foster and C.J. Mosley as their junior season levels? Well, no, of course they didn't. That wasn't expected. But did they progress from week one uh, um, in early September to January 1? Yes. And to say otherwise, I think is disingenuous. Again, I don't think we have any guys or girls on, uh, gals on our uh, uh, podcast uh, audience that uh, don't think they improved. But we might. And if you're out there, then I want to hear it. But um, but I think folks that listen to us uh, probably saw that uh, probably saw that throughout the season. Uh, other things that happened defensively against Michigan: two interceptions. In fact, two of uh, Shea Patterson's last four passes were inter, uh, were intercepted. And so I thought that was uh, I thought that was pretty interesting. Shai Carter had him one, and uh, Job did as well. Uh, there was one play that I got a um, I, I didn't like it at the time, uh, but. Um, I tipped my hat to it. I thought it was interesting. And when I wrote down in my notes, uh, I wrote down, damn it, that's, that is a Josh Gaddis special. 
And so you remember Josh Gaddis was uh, Gaddis was one of the coaches on the Alabama coaching staff in 2018, and he left uh, to become the offensive coordinator promotion for him uh, at Michigan. And uh, this was the uh, Michigan had driven the field and they scored a touchdown and they scored a touchdown pass. Uh, they scored a touchdown on a pass to the tight end, uh, Nick Eubanks. Now, here's what's interesting on this play. And if you go back and, and have an opportunity to look at this, this is what is super interesting is on, on the play, the little bit of misdirection that they, that they factored into that play. So they faked the run uh, up the middle. Uh, Shea did. Now, Shea's a running quarterback, a mobile quarterback. And so when he fakes the the handoff to the running back and then fakes the, and, and then goes to run, you have to take that into account that he may actually run the ball because he, he does have wheels. And so he faked the handoff and then he faked himself the dive up the middle and then turn and pass to the tight end that had gone across the formation um, behind the line of scrimmage, but it had gone across the formation and they caught a pass over in the over in the left flat. And so there's a lot of sort of eye candy on that, the fake to the running back, the fake of the running quarterback, and then uh, the pass back across sort of the motion of the offense to the tight end. So there's a lot of sort of dynamic things to get and see and watch, and they scored a touchdown on that. But to really understand and really appreciate what happened on that play, you have to watch the play that happened before the touchdown. And on the play before the touchdown, Xavier McKinney lost his helmet. His helmet came off. Now, Xavier lost his helmet a couple times during the season. And if you sat near me in the stands, I would frequently yell, buckle that thing up. Because it kept, you know, flying off his head. And it flew off his head on the play just before the touchdown. And so what's the rules? When your helmet comes off, you have to sit out a play. So there goes Xavier McKinney, who's going to be, you know, potentially the top safety chosen in this year's NFL draft. He has to go sit out a play. And who comes in? Now, I'm not mad at the player. He just hasn't played a whole lot and hasn't played nearly as much. Daniel Wright. And one of the things that we've learned about Daniel Wright, because of a conversation that I had with an individual. This is also on a bonus show. I'm sorry, but I'm going to reference those. I'm going to call them out. But we uh, had an opportunity to meet or speak to someone who works inside the football office. So we just started asking him questions. And one of the things he said about Daniel Wright, he's a great kid, but he freelances. He likes to freelance. And on this play where there's two misdirections, there's actually, there's two fakes and call it against the grain motion with the tight end. The tight end is Daniel Wright's guy. Well, Daniel Wright falls down on that play. And does he fall down because he stutter stepping between the two fakes and, and is not able to get out on the tight end? Yes, I think so. And so Daniel Wright falls down and Nick Eubanks is wide open for the touchdown. And so I just kind of tip my hat. I was like, I don't like that. And I don't like what that gets the score to uh, at that point in the ball game. But I respect and appreciate what he did there. And I swear, I think that play was called when they saw McKinney go out with his helmet. It's still a good play down on the goal line, even with McKinney on there. But when you have an opportunity, I mean, you are studying. And Josh knows the Alabama personnel better than anyone on the Michigan staff. And so if he's got that play dialed up, because it's a damn good play just anyways. But when he's got that dialed up and he sees McKinney come out, now it's just a better play. I'll take that play every day 
against that matchup, a player coming in cold. And so uh, to be able to run that down on the goal line is a good play anyways, but to be able to run it, especially in that circumstance, I doubt that that was the next play up on this, on the play sheet. I'm just going to, I, you know, I'm just going to predict that. And so if I think that play was specifically, Oh, let's go get that one. Shuffle my papers. Where's that play? Let's go get that play. When we see McKinney uh, come out, that's, that's what I think kind of happened there. Um, and so hats off to that. Uh, Michigan's probably my last point on defense. Michigan attacked uh, Josh Job, uh, which I think I thought was interesting. Trayvon Diggs did not play in this game. I wish he had, but with Josh Job in there, the corner with the least experience, let's go get him. I think that makes a lot of sense from an attack perspective. I think Josh played well. Um, he had an interception, two, uh, six tackles, and a pass deflection, so he was active. Uh, stat sheet stuffer. I have to say that real fast and I mess it up. Uh, but he definitely did that. Uh, but also, uh, I'll say that Shea had really a bad day. And um, and I think he overthrew some passes that uh, would have showed up as completions against uh, Josh Job. But I like the fact that Job got the start there. That's something that he can carry uh, and, and that he did put up the numbers that he did. That's certainly something that he can carry into uh, the spring workout or the offseason workout, which they're in now. And certainly into spring practice, which is which is coming up, and I think that gives him a leg up. Uh, we're going to talk about this, uh, but I think that gives him a leg up in spring practice. That gives him a leg up in um, competition for um, for a starting spot when we think about the the 2020 season. When I go mini game ball on defense against Alabama and Michigan, I'm going uh, Fildarian Mathis and Tavita Masika. Uh, Mathis had four tackles, and uh, Tavita had five with half a sack. Uh, I'm just giving a hats off to the active defensive front uh, against Michigan. We had some guys out, and so we had uh, it was sort of all hands on deck for uh, defensive line uh, against Michigan. And so the fact that these guys, uh, upperclassmen, were active, uh, I think is great. Uh, again, I think a big day by Phil uh, helps him prepare for this next season, gives him something to sort of uh, a springboard, if you will, and then Tavita. Uh, this marked the end of his career, so the fact that he had an extra tackle and half a sack in, in his last game, what may be his last game playing football, um, I was proud to see him uh, step up and contribute and play and uh, have, have some numbers there. And so I bid him uh, well in, in the future. Hopefully I'll be candid. I don't think he makes an NFL team. Uh, can he do something uh, in the XFL or Canada? Yeah, potentially he can. And uh, hats off to him and, and wish him well, certainly, uh, and then in those endeavors. Um, let's see. Let's wrap up special teams. Uh, Bolivis was 5 of 5 for PATs. That has kind of been what he does. Uh, Mike Bernier came out and uh, punted. And we haven't seen, I don't think, uh, maybe scrub up duty late in the game, but we haven't seen much of Mike uh, all season. And all he did is just come out and kick a little ass he had six punts. He averaged 42.3, uh, which is, uh, I think last year he averaged in the low 30s. And so the fact that he was 42 uh, and actually had a long of 52, uh, boy, that just, I was surprised to see that. There was no talk of it in the game, and I wouldn't expect it because the commentators don't really notice and pick up on these things, especially in a bowl game where there's just so many darn games and you're running so many sort of commentators from in and out from different places. Uh, but P. Ryan did not play, and I found one article. I probably read 50 articles after the game. I found one article 
where it was just referenced that he had a hamstring pull. I don't know why that, I don't know that why that was, wasn't part of every article. Um, I guess people don't care about the punters and that's okay. Uh, but it's something that we keep track of and that we watch. And so P Ryan had a hamstring and that's why he didn't, he did not play in that game. Uh, Waddle, let's see, I've got him down on my notes. Uh, I think he had a couple of punt returns, one for 13, uh, and then yeah, kickoff. He had one for negative two. I think that's why I wrote that down. Uh, he had one kickoff return for negative two yards, which is a little thing that we do. I mean, when you take it out of the end zone and, and you get to the 23, uh, what you've done is you've cost your team two yards because they'll give it to you for free on the 25. To the extent that this is a drinking game, take uh, take a drink when we say that. So that's what we've got about uh, the Michigan. Oh, wait, wait, wait a second. There's a question? Oh, there's a question. Oh, the question, did we run up the score at the end of the game? Was that last touchdown, was that running up the score? Well, glad you asked because I actually have some notes on that. My answer is no. That was not running up the score. And I don't care who gets their panties in a wide with my response or that last-minute touchdown. But let me run some numbers by you, and let me explain why Najee Harris's second touchdown uh, that got the game to 35, why was that not running up the score? Well, I'll tell you. The drive that Alabama scored that last touchdown was a 12-play, 75-yard drive. It was a drive that took off five minutes and 49 seconds off the clock. So the intent there was the four-minute take the air out of the ball, right? That's what that was from a Saban perspective. Four-minute drill, take the air out of the ball. So we're going to run we're going to run the ball in that situation. Well, 12 plays, 11 of the plays were Najee runs. 70 of the 75 yards were rushing yards. So the whole, you know, if you don't want them to score, stop them. Well, if you don't want Alabama to score in that situation, stop them. There was nothing dynamic. There was nothing outrageous. There was nothing tricky. There was nothing taking advantage of the situation uh, in which Alabama scored. It wasn't, you know, a pop pass. Uh, it wasn't a any sort of misdirection. Uh, it was 11 straight up plays. Uh, it wasn't a play fake, you know, throw that over the top of everyone. It was straight up backyard. We're just trying to run, uh, run out the clock. And so 11 carries, 70 yards. The lone pass was a five-yard pass, and it was on third down, a passing situation. So there was no mystery, no intrigue, no surprise, no tricky-dickiness. It was just straight up. We're going to pound the ball. Stop us if you stop us. Otherwise, we're going to try to run the time off the clock, run the air out of the ball, Saban's expression, and go from there. Michigan, during this drive, during this 5-minute and 49-second drive, during this 12-play drive, Michigan used three timeouts. And so you think about extending the play, extending the time. Now, the clock time, the football clock time was 549. The, the, like the real-time clock was closer to 12, 13, 14 minutes because of, probably not 14, but closer to 10, 11 minutes because of the timeouts and the TV and all that sort of bullshit that, that goes with it. Uh, at the time the drive started, there were six minutes and 10 seconds on the play clock, and Alabama had a 12-point lead. All of these things are important. Alabama had a 12-point lead. That's a two-possession game at that point. 
There's 610 on the clock. Alabama burned 549 of it, which means, you know, sort of at the very end, Michigan had a 26 second um, or, or right at the end had a 26 second uh, time of possession during which they threw an interception. Michigan's first timeout. Now they called three timeouts during this 12 play drive. Their first timeout was at 358. So two minutes and 12 seconds had been burned at that time. Basically a third, more than a third of the available time on the clock had been burned before Michigan called their first timeout. Now what they did, they called that timeout four plays into the 12 play drive. Alabama had a, had a, had a first down, a second down, a third down, then another first down, then Michigan called the timeout. Now, on one hand, I can see what they're doing. Let's see if we can get a three and out, get the ball back, and make something happen. When Alabama doesn't get on, on the third down, when Alabama gets a first down, if if you're playing, you can't have you can't have it both ways, right? And so if we can get them three and out, then we get the ball back. And so we're going to give them the th- first three plays and then call the timeout if they get a first down. They didn't do that. They called that for four plays. So there's a first down, second down, third down, then a first down, then the timeout. Also, what you'll see people do if their strategy is let's get them three and out, they'll call a timeout during those first three plays. Rather than just run the three plays and then get them three and out, which allows, even if Alabama did that, we're still burning, you know, two minutes, two and a half minutes off of off of the clock. They didn't, they, you know, you would call a timeout after first down. Do we pin them up on first down? Let's call timeout. Do we pin them up on second down? Let's call timeout. But they didn't. They waited till first down, second down, third down, fourth down, then a timeout. A third of the remaining clock had burned. And remember, you need two possessions here. So uh, it's not just let's get the ball, march down, kick a field goal, win the game. You need two possessions. So they called one timeout. After uh, two minutes and 12 seconds, again, more than a third of the time uh, had been burned, they called, and in game clock, again, thinking about game clock, uh, the clock had the clock was down to three minutes and 58 seconds. So three minutes, 58 seconds, Alabama's sitting at second down, and you need two possessions. You're, you're really on the cusp of, at, at that point, of calling timeouts for the sake of calling timeouts. You've you've kind of already, the horse is kind of already out of the barn. I'm not going to say that they couldn't have still won at that point, but their odds are significantly less at three minutes and 58 seconds than they would have been at five minutes and 58 seconds if they had called a timeout after first down of the, of the very first play. So factor that in. Now, at 3.58, you call your first timeout after a first down, and you think, okay, now we're going to start using our timeouts. Well, no. The first timeout was with, with 3.58 left on the clock. The second timeout was with 2.39 left on the clock. So a whole another minute and 20 seconds, which at that point, and I'm doing math in my head, that's another third of the time. Maybe you have some algorithm where you call timeout every third of the time burned. I don't know. But after, you know, 2.12 out of 6.10, that's roughly a third and then you you let another minute 20 go from 358 that's a third so you're sitting at 239 when you called your second time out now at that point 
Alabama's moved the ball, and I don't have the yardage at this point, but Alabama's moved the ball down the field. You've called a timeout. I'm not sure exactly which down it is. There weren't many third downs on that drive. Let's just put it that way. And and you need two possessions, and it's a bowl game. You're not playing for conference anything. And so at that point, you almost shouldn't have called that timeout. When you call the timeout at that point, you're really just kind of being an ass. Uh, and, and I don't know how else to say it, right? You're not going to win the game. You're not going to come back. Just, just let the time run out. Let's just, you know, be done. Uh, but no, we call a timeout. They call a timeout. The next play he calls, what's the third timeout? And so at two minutes and 32 seconds, seven, you know, one play later, seven seconds later, he's calling another timeout. And then that's the end of the timeouts. And so you wonder, why the hell are you calling these timeouts? What is this timeout strategy? It's not an effort to try to win the game because when you call them and how you call them don't overlap with trying to win the game strategy. And so it presents as you're just trying to underscore, you're just trying to make a point of, you're just trying to kind of be an ass. And so when, and, and so when you get to Alabama driving to the end zone again, 11 out of 12 plays running the ball, 70 out of 75 yards rushing. When you get to the end zone, what do you do? Do you tell Najee not to score a touchdown? Do you take Najee out and let someone else rush and maybe accidentally get the touchdown? Hell no, you leave Najee in. Let him get that touchdown if he if he can get it. And he gets it because Michigan, at that point, their players were worn out mentally and physically, and, um, and you score the touchdown there. So, is that last touchdown running up the score? No, no, it's not. It's football. It's football. And, and and when you look at what Michigan did and how Harbaugh managed that last six minutes, I'm not going to feel bad. I'm not going to view that as running up the score. There are other circumstances where, yeah, I might scratch my head and say, running up the score here. Here, nope, not running up the score. Not running up the score at all. So glad you asked that question because that was fun. So let's shift gears. We're going to now talk about topic number two. And we're probably going to cover three topics, three out of the 10 topics here. That'll put us just over an hour. And then we'll come back and uh, we'll hit the rest of the topics. I think they're they're a little more fun-loving topics. And um, they'll probably go a little quicker. So let's talk about topic two. Uh, We're going to talk about coaching staff and stability and depth within the coaching staff. Now, I'm going to tell you two things before we jump into this topic. One. This is not the Pete Golding conversation, okay? That's coming up. This is not it. Uh, and the second thing, I put together my notes for this topic last week, and then as I was laying my head in bed, uh, I said, well, let's just look at Alabama news just one last time, and that's when all the news broke out last Sunday night about Cochran uh, leaving. And I was like, well, son of a gun, I'd already put together my notes to talk about stability on the coaching staff, and here we go, have this, this big change on the extended coaching staff. And then my second thought was, well, thank God I didn't record a podcast because then I'd have podcasts going out that didn't represent this big development uh, on the coaching staff. And so we have the opportunity with a little bit of call, call laziness on my part, not recording last weekend. Uh, we have an opportunity to spend some time uh, with the large group talking about um, Cochran and some of the uh, imminent changes there. But the thrust of my notes are still good, and they're still right. 2020 represents stability within the coaching staff in a way that prior seasons have lacked. 
And here's an interesting stat. And I think I read this three or four times in uh, different outlets. And I think I became more amazed with it every time I heard it. So if this is the first time you're hearing this, rewind it a couple times because it becomes a little bit more amazing every time, uh, every time you think about it. But the 2020 season, as it stands right now, knock on wood, will be the first time since 2015, five years, that Alabama has returned both coordinators. And so in 2015, Alabama returned Lane Kiffin and Kirby Smart, um, went on to win the national title that year. In 2020, Alabama returns Steve Sarkeesian and Pete Golding. Now, Steve and Lane, you know, maybe you call them a wash. Pete Golding's not Kirby Smart. I understand that. We're going to have a Pete Golding conversation in a minute. But when you talk about stability within a coaching staff, that is not unimportant. And so when you have four straight years with turnover at your coordinator position, and I'm just talking just the coordinator position, not the other positions in, in which there's always turbulence there, especially when coordinators shift. When you have the stability at the coordinator position, that's a big deal. It's a super big deal. Think of Clemson and Dabo Sweeney and the lack of turnover they've had on that coaching staff. And uh, especially, especially at the coordinator positions. It's a big deal. You can't retrain your staff every year and not think there's going to be some erosion. It's, it's, it, it just doesn't work that way. I know it's Saban and I know it's Alabama and I know it's whatever it is that we want it to be, but no, the universe doesn't work that way. And, and, and so stability is good, uh, especially when they're good coaches. I'll have the Pete Golding conversation in a minute, but I, I think it's exciting when we think about 2020, it's exciting to think about the stability on the coaching staff. Uh, there, there were, Minor changes at the non-coordinator positions. And we'll get to the strength and condition coach in just a minute. But I, and I even in my notes put air quotes next to minor because they're almost non-changes um, in, in my mind. But let's step them through. Uh, Brian Baker had moved. Uh, now, Brian, you know, the headline is Brian Baker is replaced by Freddie Roach. Okay. That's not untrue. But there's a step between Brian Baker and Freddie Roach that a lot of the articles sort of glaze over. And it's a very important point. Uh, Brian Baker had been moved to an off-the-field position. Uh, Coach Saban took Brian off off uh, one of the on-the-field coaches. And so just if you just look at that as a standalone event, and Brian Baker had been uh, on the defensive front uh, for just one year, and he replaced Coach Coogs, uh, Kugelowski, Craig Kugelowski, who had also just been there one year. And I'm going to draw a blank. Uh, oh, he maybe replaced Tosh, who was promoted. And so not the golden conversation, but this will be four years in a row that we've had a different defensive line coach. And that's one of the more critical positions uh, uh, across, especially you think about the front eight and, and how that impacts and impacting and affecting the quarterback. Uh, but uh, not insignificant, the degree of changes over the years that we've had at the defensive front. But it's also important to realize that Brian Baker had been moved to an off-field position. He was subsequently picked up by the Indianapolis Colts in, in, in the NFL. And so, you know, in the world where more than one thing can be true at once, Brian Baker is a really good defensive line coach. Uh, he came from Mississippi State and was very good at Mississippi State. 
he was good enough a defensive line coach that the NFL came and got him. And so very good defensive line coach, Brian Baker. But when you think about fit and fit is everything fit and scheme and system, uh, it seemed that there was a mismatch with Brian and Saban and otherwise Saban wouldn't have taken him off the field, right? He'd still be the defensive line coach. Uh, and so that is an important thing to keep in mind. You don't, to not lose sight uh, of that, um, especially in the larger swirl of being angry at defensive coaches. That's not a, that's not a small thing, uh, you know, to keep in mind. Now, I would tell you that I kind of figured that Brian Baker would find himself, himself back in Mississippi State uh, where he had uh, where he'd coached previously. There's a turnover of coaching staff there, so I figured he might find himself there. Or that he might go to Ole Miss with Lane Kiffin. And, you know, my thinking there is that would give Kiffin an opportunity to sort of, you know, poke Saban in the eye again, grabbing one of his coaches, uh, someone that has ooh, information about uh, Alabama. Uh, also, I thought that uh, a lot of coaches will go back to states they'll go back to teams even if it's a different team in the same state uh that they'll go to that team uh so that they can add years to their pension and so had he been close um and not knowing exactly i don't know all the codifications of the mississippi state pension or the state of mississippi pension program uh but i figured there was an opportunity with two d-line positions open for sec teams in the state of mississippi i figured he found himself back uh over there but uh, nonetheless, he ended up with the Colts in the NFL. I think Freddie Roach is a step up. Uh, clearly, that's who Saban had in mind when uh, when he moved Brian to an off-field uh, position. And Freddie Roach obviously was a successful player at Alabama, but he's also done stints uh, in the extended coaching staff. He was part of the strength and conditioning program at one point. Uh, I want to say he was an analyst or GA or sort of different titles there. He was an off-the-field coach, uh, but part of the extended coaching staff. Um, and he's done at least one, maybe two stints. Uh, I think this is maybe his third stint uh, at Alabama under Saban. So he understands the program, and he understands the Saban program. And so he's not like a new coach coming in off the street as much as he's coming back into the fold and can – pick up pretty immediately, uh, pretty quickly, what he needs to do. He knows what he's getting into, uh, and then he can pick it up pretty quickly. So I think Freddie Roach is going to be a fantastic add uh, to the defensive front. Uh, there were two coaches, uh, Vinny Sanceri, an analyst, GA. Uh, he left to go to the Patriots, and he actually left in the fall. And uh, Joe Houston, uh, an analyst, uh, he also went to the, the Patriots. And uh, he's he was sort of termed the kicking whisperer. So I have a couple of points that I want to make about these two guys leaving. Saban and Belichick are pretty good buddies. Uh, I think we all would agree and, and acknowledge and understand that. So Belichick did not poach these guys uh, from Saban, nor did we not want them and did we sort of pawn them off on the Patriots. Um, I think this was, I don't think, uh, I don't think Belichick would have, you know, come and gotten the guys without a conversation with Saban. And I think they, I think there was an agreement that, hey, these guys want to maybe coach in the NFL. Uh, they, you know, they're they're not so critical that we can't have them, but they don't suck such that you don't want them. And so I think there was sort of a mutual sort of agreement there. And I think that's cool. I think that's good. Uh, we see a lot of poaching going on. We'll talk about Scott Cochran in a minute. Uh, that happens a lot. This is this is not that kind of circumstance. And I can't say this without I can't say kitchen uh, kicking whisperer 
without thinking of the, you know, somewhere in there, there's a joke that if he was the kicking whisperer, um, can't say that a couple of times. That's hard to say. Kicking whisperer. You can't be the kicking whisperer <laughs> at Alabama without there being a joke about, damn it, you probably need to speak up. There's no more whispering because they're not hearing your ass. Speak up because, you know, the issues we've had with our kicking game. So to me, that was funny. Hopefully somebody's laughing, uh, driving down the road somewhere. Uh, Butch Jones, he was a promotion to special assistant to Nick Saban, which was kind of the uh, position that Burton Burns uh, had. Uh, and, and when Burton Burns moved to off the field, I didn't realize he was, you know, there was a knee injury and, you know, with uh, surgery there that he had. And now he's getting back in the coaching back with the Giants. I would have loved to find a way to work him back onto our staff. But I respect the fact that he wants to go to the NFL and do something there. And I'll just say, man, the Giants are putting together a pretty interesting staff. Uh, they might be, uh, I'm not making any big predictions NFL-wise, but uh, they might be a fun staff to watch uh, with some of their um, with some of their changes there. Uh, but when we think about Butch Jones, I think I've, I've called him this before. I think he's the Forrest Gump of the Alabama program, uh, which is sort of a double joke there because Forrest Gump in the movie did play at Alabama. Uh, but just the fact that Forrest Gump was everywhere, whatever sort of the, the cultural situation of the time was, which is part of him playing at Alabama under Bear Bryant in the seventies. Right. And so part of sort of the cultural, whatever the, whatever, uh, there was Forrest Gump right in the middle of it. And so when you think about coaching staff changes and you think about, uh, even just when you see the team on TV or pictures or whatever, Butch Jones has his mug just everywhere somewhere, uh, in, in, in those. And so he has like a PR agent somewhere in that. And then of course, probably the biggest, you know, ad with, um, with, you know, the extended staff is Charlie Strong, uh, adding as, uh, adding as a, um, a defensive analyst. And I know a lot of people are excited about him, you know, coming in and being the defensive coordinator or being the next defensive coordinator and, and all of that. And again, <laughs> say it with me, we're going to have the peak in conversation in just a minute, but, uh, I'm going to, I'm just going to look, here's my prediction, write it down. Butch Jones becomes offensive coordinator at Alabama before Charlie Strong becomes the defensive coordinator at Alabama. So that's not, you know, you write that as a hot take, whatever, whatever that is. Uh, that's just my prediction. That is just my read on the situation. Um, and, and then I'll tell you, I think we're too deep. Uh, I'm going to circle back to that Butch Jones comment in a minute. But uh, when we talk about, Stability, and I specifically said stability and depth. I'm going to get to the depth part now. Think about this. Talk about quality programs, quality depth across the coaching staff. Alabama, I think, is arguably three deep at both coordinator positions. Now, they're not all equally one as good as the next, but I think we're three deep at the coordinator positions. If, if a coordinator were to go down... Uh, we would have next man up in those positions. And so when you think about, uh, I'll do offense and then I'll do defense. If you talk, talk about Stark uh, or Sark, Sark as Steve Sark uh, as our offensive coordinator, I think our sort of backups, if you will, at the offensive coordinator uh, position, if you were to look at it that way, is Butch Jones. And I think Butch Jones probably is the next offensive coordinator at Alabama. And then if you could go 3D, uh, I'd go with A.J. Milwee, and hopefully I'm saying his name uh, correctly. He is a former offensive coordinator in uh, in uh, uh, top, big, uh, what is it, top big five programs. 
And so I, you know, so there you go. I'd say we're three deep at the offensive coordinator position. And I, and similarly, I'd go three deep at the different defensive coordinator. Uh, Pete Coleman obviously is the defensive coordinator. And then you can talk about actually the co you put two or three in different orders, I guess the co defensive coordinator today is Charles Kelly, who is a former defensive coordinator at Florida state. And then, Oh, you've got Charlie strong too, who's uh, a, a pretty stout defensive coordinator and, He's been a head coach as well. So I think it's interesting that we're three deep at the defensive coordinator uh, positions. Now, I'm going to tell you an interesting little fact, and and uh, and I can't remember where I read this, where I saw this, or I'd give them credit. Uh, but let me give you a little interesting fact with, um, uh, with Butch Jones. Butch Jones is still being paid by the University of Tennessee. Uh, he's getting, because uh, they fired him, and so the payout of his guaranteed money. He's still making 200 grand a month. Uh, $2.4 million a year. Um, man, I'd be happy with 200 grand a year, and he's getting that a month. I don't know. Do the math. But uh, he's getting paid $2.4 million a year, and that runs out next February, February of 2021. And so come the first part of next year, Butch Jones may start to get serious looking about another uh, position. Uh, he's interviewed, so he's been active. He's kept his name out there. He's done all the things that you would want to do. And so what's interesting is Sark has been interviewed, and he's kept his name out there a little bit. And I think Sark, my think, I, my opinion, is that when Sark came back, there was a little bit of an agreement, gentleman's agreement. It's not going to be written in the contract, but I think there's a gentleman's agreement that you're not leaving after one year. We're not going to screw around with this. Come be our offensive coordinator. This this demonstrates some stability. And then when the right opportunity comes, Mississippi State's not the right opportunity. Come on. Colorado, that's even a worse opportunity. Those are not the right opportunities. Sark, don't leave Alabama to go to those programs. When the right opportunity comes along, we'll know it. And then we can shake hands and, and, and go our different directions. Well, I think Sark probably has the opportunity to do that next year. And when he does... Um, <clears throat> Butch Jones, I think, will be right there, ready to step into that offensive coordinator position, and that and that'll be really just poking the eye of, of Tennessee. Like we'll keep him on our staff for thirty grand and let you foot the bill. And the minute you stop footing the bill, oh, yeah, then we'll play. Then we'll pay full freight uh, on a salary uh, for Butch Jones. So I think that would be both hilarious, uh, appropriate, and fitting. Now, all right, I'm gonna take a sip for this one. That was a long run with no water. And I drink a lot of water. So there you go. All right. So now let's talk about the strength and conditioning position. Scott Cochran has been, I'm going to say a couple things, right? And they can all be true. They can all be true. Even if they, even if they don't hold hands, facts can, facts can still be true. Scott Cochran has been a significant and important contributor to the Saban program. He's not the Saban program. He just has been someone over the last 13 years that has partnered very well with Saban and has done very well in leading the strength and conditioning program under Coach Saban. He develops phenomenal relationships with players. The players like him. The fans like him. He's this beast animal-like character that, that we love and, and what you think of as, you know, a traditional central casting 
strength and conditioning uh, coordinator. When it was announced that he was going to leave, uh, and there had been other opportunities, Kirby wanted to take him to Georgia with him as strength and uh, strength and conditioning coach, you know, a couple of years ago. And I thought there might be an opportunity that that he would go. And Jeremy Pruitt asked him to go to um, Tennessee with him. There was some back and forth whether or not Lane asked him to come to uh, to Ole Miss. Uh, but the point is, he's had opportunities to leave, and he hasn't. And I think he probably agreed that if I'm going to be a strength and conditioning coach anywhere, it's going to be at Alabama under Saban. Uh, and that's why he hasn't wanted to leave. But he was offered an opportunity to go to Georgia as their special teams coordinator. And to me, that's a pretty big step up. And so on one hand, love Scott Cochran, wish he were not leaving. On the other hand, I would not hire him tomorrow to be our special teams coordinator. I like what we have in Jeff Banks. It would have made much less of a headline if Jeff Banks were leaving to become Georgia's special teams coach. That would not have made barely a headline, but that would have been more impactful, I think, when you think about on-the-field play. I think if you're going to take a special teams coordinator, and I'm not mad at Scott Cochran, and I'm not predicting that he's not going to be successful, but I'll say this. If you're going to take a special teams coordinator that's never really had an on-the-field, I'm sorry, a strength and conditioning coach, they're both SC, right? When you take a strength and conditioning coach and put him as an on-the-field coach, there are easier positions to do that at, right? Maybe it's a tight end coach because, you know, the guy played tight end. Maybe it's an outside linebacker or inside linebacker position where he can be buffeted between a defensive line coach and another linebacker coach and a secondary coach and be supported in that way. But to take in, in to, but to take someone who's limited, if any, on-field uh, coaching experience and put them at a strength and, and put them at a special teams coordinator at an SEC program, and not just any SEC program, but a top echelon Georgia uh, program, that is a big step up. And I'm not predicting he's going to fail. And I'm not any more than I don't want Georgia to, to win a whole lot. I'm, I'm not rooting against them. I just think that's a mighty big step up. And, um, and, and I think he's going to bring something to that. And he's going to build relationships. And he's going to probably be really good on the recruiting trail, which is something that he was not able to do in that capacity uh, at Alabama. And I think as he aspires to become a head coach, he is getting uh, sort of a golden road laid out in front of him to be a special teams coordinator. There are two head coaches right now in the NFL that got promoted from special teams coordinators to uh, head coaches. And so that doesn't mean that that's a wellspring of future coaches, but it's not a bad route to get started. And uh, I think Cochran is getting sort of a slipstream opportunity. He's getting a further ahead opportunity. He's cut out middle steps uh, to get that level of opportunity. And if he could, and if he can translate that into success, then hats off. Um, but it's a challenge. It's a challenge. Uh, and not rooting against him. I just think that's a tough, that's tough for anyone. Uh, now, the prevailing thought, and if I had recorded this Monday or Tuesday or Wednesday, I'd give you different names than I'm, what I'm hearing now. 
not that I have inside information. It's just, you know, I'm synthesizing headlines. But I would have thought that the uh, uh, the field, the Feld guy, uh, Aaron Feld uh, from Oregon, that was that was my first name uh, prediction, you know, back when I heard that Scott was leaving. Uh, and, and, and it turns out I think he's sort of out of the running. Uh, it looks like we're going to get a tandem from Indiana, which is not what you think of when you think of not at least not out of hand. That's not what you think of when you think of uh, strength and conditioning programs. But what I've done a little bit of research, a little bit of work into David Ballou and uh, Dr. Matt, uh, Matt Ray, and everything that I've seen is just outstanding. Um, that uh, the coaching staff at Indiana, and I think they've only been there a couple of years, uh, but so, you know, a couple of the sound bites uh, that, uh, that the coaching staff talks about is, you know, they add a star, whatever the recruiting rank of the player is when they, uh, when they've gotten to Indiana, that these two guys working in combination, they've added a star. That's that's a in recruiting parlance. That's a big deal. Uh, they've talked about. There was a good article in I think November of 2019 talking about David Ray is not a. We've all heard you can't coach speed. You you've got it or you can't or you don't. And uh, Matt Ray is one of those guys who does not believe that. Uh, he believes you can coach uh, speed. And uh, over the course of uh, this article. They talked about how there there were some players on the team that he increased he increased their their speed three and four miles per hour. The average speed of the team he increased the average team speed by a mile per hour. That's significant. That's a uh, that's a big deal. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see that type of training. I think there's more of a uh, we talk about Matt Ray. It's 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 Doctor Matt Ray. And so when we think about him and David Ballou, I think there's more of a scientific uh, approach. Um, specifically, and I'm, I'll butcher or paraphrasing uh, the quote, but uh, David Ballou, uh, you know, was commented as, as saying that you can do all the analytics, you can take all the measurements, but it's not just the taking of the analytics, but it's what you do with them. It's how you use them. Uh, he talked about injuries that you can't, it's football. You can't prevent injuries. But there are markers, there are red flags flags that you can watch for to sort of pull back on the level of activity uh, and maybe uh, maybe diminish the opportunity uh, for there to be injuries, especially in you think about it in terms of usage uh, injuries. If you get you know if you get popped on a play in the knee, that, there was no red flag for that. It just happened, and that's football. But if it's a usage wearing down, maybe some of the foot injuries we've had is that something that that is, is trackable, is monitorable, is 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 correctable. I don't know. We'll see. That that'll be you know that'll be uh, very uh, you know very interesting. But uh, another thing that I, I read, and this will sort of be my last thought on this, is that uh, Indiana they've improved over the last couple of years. I think this last season was one of the more productive seasons uh, that they've had. But they talked about, and this is David Ballou again talking about building. The team that's peak, I want to say exactly how he said it, but it's not just endurance, but uh, in their team measuring that their team, their power numbers, and I think this was weight room power numbers, their power numbers went up over the course of the season. And you always think about a team getting better over the course of the season. And we talk about that a lot on the podcast or getting into you know mid-season form. And we talk about that kind of stuff. But when you think about the power numbers, sort of the behind the scene numbers not only is the play or is the team getting more sort of entrenched in the schematics and then just you know playing football on a week week over week but their fitness levels 
and their power numbers are getting better over the course of the season. That's pretty darn impressive because hasn't haven't we noticed there a lull, a lag? Uh, there's a you know that three quarter mark. There's almost been like a dead zone in in Alabama seasons. Um, and, and, and if I notice that from my couch, I know Saban does. And I don't think Saban was going to replace Cochran. He may have wanted to add someone. What I'm hearing is he wanted to add someone that, and again, I'm not an insider, uh, but he wanted to add someone that was, was more from, I want to say technology, more from um, the research, the analytics, uh, not just the, the performance sciences, as opposed to, you know, hey, 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 push, push, push. Uh, more more of the an evolving new school approach to uh, strength and conditioning. And, and so I don't think he would have replaced Scott just out of hand. Uh, but he probably didn't, this is my speculation, he probably didn't fight too hard when Scott said he was going to leave, especially with the opportunity. Uh, and, uh, and, and so, you know, that's my thought. That's probably my thought on that. Um, it, if you go back and sort of anticipate T-Leagues, you know, Freddie Roach came back um, and was not announced for a while. Makes me wonder if there were any conversations about Scott Cochran wanting to be the defensive line coach. I don't know. I don't know. Uh, it's just it's easy to look back kind of hindsight and, and see things, how play uh, how they played out and, you know, kind of go through it, uh, kind of go through it from there. But uh, I think if we end up with the tandem of, of Blue and, and Matt Ray, that's going to be pretty damn exciting. And uh, I think some of what they're going to bring to the program, uh, I think is going to be exciting. It's going to be new. Uh, it's going to be invigorating, I think, for the players. Uh, I think for Coach Saban as well. And I say all of that with zero ill will towards Scott Cochran. Uh, I just think it's, it's, a, it's a natural sort of inflection point. It's a natural transition point. I wish Scott mostly very, very well <laughs> by virtue of him going to Georgia. I had to temper that a little bit. And uh, the fact of where he's the career transition, I've thought about career transitions, right? And so the, the career transition that he's looking for, that's exciting. And I wish him well there. Uh, but I'm also excited about uh, what Alabama is doing and bringing in these two guys. Uh, one last point, uh, I'd heard that uh, in strength and conditioning sort of circles, uh, these guys are incredibly high, uh, highly well thought of and that there were some NFL, there were and are and will be in the future uh, NFL teams that are interested in them. And so if they come in and, and really sort of take the lid off of what they may be capable of doing, uh, we may need to fight to keep them from going to an NFL team here in a year or two. But that'll be a neat storyline to kind of watch. Uh, I hope they become hot commodities because that, may, that means they will have kicked some ass here at Alabama. Now, I'm an hour 16 into recording, but I did some preamble with the producer. So eh, just over an hour here. I'm going to hit my last topic for this sort of part one. I need to take up for this one because I have some energy <clears throat> around this topic. Hopefully I can bring it out. So we're going to talk about Pete Golding. And we've 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 talked about talking about him. We've for, uh, foreshadowed that we're going to talk about him. Now we're going to talk about him. And I'm going to do it this way, right? Maula Obi-Wan Kenobi. Pete Golding is not the scapegoat that you are looking for. I think a lot of Alabama fans, I'm going to paint with a broad brush here. There's two camps. There's the fire Pete Golding uh, camp. And this camp rallies around mantras around 
you know, the defense is not to an Alabama standard. Uh, Alabama allowed 40 points twice this last season. Pete Golding cost us two games. Uh, we would have won the national title were it not for Pete Golding being incompetent. And so there's sort of the, the fire Pete Golding camp. Those are some of their, you know, mantras. There's the camp that, that, that kind of says, well, Pete Golding, if he's good enough for Coach Saban, he's good enough for me. And there's not a lot of additional thought that, that goes with that. And uh, I think both of those camps, you're, as you go through this, there's everyone sort of aligns himself to one camp. And I'm, I'm going to try to walk you back from that. I think both of those camps are wrong-minded. <clears throat> I think those are very superficial camps, especially the way that I set them up, especially the way that I hear and interact with fans uh, that, that align themselves. It's almost a whistle past the graveyard. If he's good enough for saving, he's good enough for me. And there's and then there's just this knee-jerk sort of fire peak holding. I think both are superficial, and I think they're both very wrong-minded. And so now I'm going to walk you through a little bit here. Um, last week I was reading the book. I'm going to go a little off-field off and then come back. Last week I was reading the book, and um, <clears throat> I know I read uh, non-football stuff sometimes. And um, there was a um, – and I'm going to – paraphrase sort of a quote from the book and it talked about wisdom wisdom is found on purpose and i thought man that really read and i went back and read it a couple times and read it a couple times and i think man that's that is pretty cool and it's damn right uh wisdom is found on purpose it's not found by accident you don't just stumble into it uh it's found intentionally it's found with intention it's found when you're looking for it and you think about uh, wisdom is what you learn from your experiences, right? Well, we also know of examples of people who continue to make the same stupid mistake. And so when we think about wisdom and learning from our experiences, it's with intentionality. It's with seeking to learn, to seeking, seeking to understand. Uh, and so I thought that quote was just interesting just in everyday walking around. But I thought, man, that applies to the Pete Golden situation. Now, for me, everything does sort of circle back to football. And so when I read that, I was like, damn, how do I apply that? And I was like, damn, that's just the Pete Golden conversation right there. Wisdom is found on purpose. It's not just all of our Pete Golden because I don't like him and because, you know, I hear all these things. Uh, and it's not, well, if he's good enough for saving, he's good enough for me because coach knows more than we do. That's almost a defeatist attitude in trying to be a fan. And so one person is reactively trying to be a super fan when – they don't know all the facts or not willing to understand all the facts. And the other is almost a defeatist. Well, if he's good enough for a coach, I guess he must be good enough for me. Neither of those pursue wisdom. Neither. Neither. And so here's here's what I think. Um, I put together some thoughts around, now I happen to like Pete Golding. And you may not like Pete Golding. And that's okay. But let's let's approach that with a little bit more information, a little more insight, at least an effort to try to understand the context of, of the statements. And I think I've got maybe six points that I put together uh, in my head and then the conclusion that they lead me towards, right? And so let's talk through these. In 2019, Alabama def Alabama's defense was not up to Alabama defensive standard pars uh, historically. I will agree with that, but I'm not going to say that it was awful. These are NCAA stats. Uh, 2019, Alabama ranked 13 in scoring defense. Now, this is out of 130, so that's top 10%. Um, in 2019, Alabama defense ranked 20th in team defense. 
Now, we'd rather be top five, of course, but 20th, not so bad. Uh, in 2019, Alabama defense was 11th in passing yards allowed. That's pretty good, especially in the age of offensive passing football. And Alabama uh, defense in 2019 was number four in passing efficiency defense. Now, those are very specific stats, and you can look up very specific stats, average yards, average rushing, average passing, that are not as pretty. Some are in the 30s. Some are in the 60s. There, there's some that really make you shudder. Uh, but they weren't all bad. There's, there's raw material here to work with. Uh, you think about the new era, uh, era of football where it's more pass-happy and wide open. Well, think about when we had some of our best staffed and best fielded uh, defenses. Think about Johnny Manziel. Did we ever develop an opportunity to, to stop him? We really didn't. I uh, think about there was this, and we talked about it on the podcast, and give Kirby Smart and Coach Saban a year, and we'll bottle that guy up, that little midget, and we never did. We never did. And so uh, it, that doesn't mean this coaching staff was on par with that coaching staff. It doesn't mean this year's players were on par with that group's players. I'm just saying this 2019 defense wasn't all bad. And in this era of football, it especially wasn't all bad. So that's point number one. Again, looking for information. One of the, the Fire Peak Golden Camps, one of one of the mantras that I've seen sort of repeated all over sort of message boards where these, you know, these people lurk. And I'll lurk there too. Um, Alabama allowed 40 points twice this season. That hasn't happened whenever. Well, let's take a look at that. 40 points allowed by Alabama twice this season. Okay. Now, we did have two teams that scored over 40 points. I agree with that. Uh, LSU scored 46 points. Damn it, they're an all-time team. That's almost not fair to count them. They may be, oh, it pains me to say this. Well, if you look at what they did, one of the best teams, one of the best seasons ever submitted in college football. I hate to say that. I don't think it's far from true. Um, and so, okay. <laughs> what do you want me to say if they score over 40 in this era of football? Okay. Uh, and the second is Auburn. They scored 48 points. But they scored 14 on pick sixes, right? And so my math tells me that's 34 points allowed by offense. Now, that's no great shakes, right? But if one of your pillars is that the Alabama defense allowed 40 points twice, then you're not even doing your homework. And so when we talk about a superficial, knee-jerk reaction, wrong-minded philosophy, and one of the pillars is built on an untruth, well, just take that into consideration as well. And in some of these, some of these next ones, I like even better. Alabama had three defensive coordinators in three seasons: uh, Pruitt, Tosh, and Golden. Subsequent seasons, uh, three defensive coordinators, uh, multiple changes. I didn't even do the math on the number of changes within the coaching staff, the defensive coaching staff, and so the turnover, the lack of continuity. We talked about continuity and continuation of coaching staffs earlier. The lack of continuity across those defensive coordinator positions, big deal. It's not not a big deal. It is a big deal. And so I think there is an opportunity to, to keep that in mind, that that played uh, certainly a role as well. Do you fire Golding and go four coordinators in four seasons, or do you allow 
other factors to play a role in keep him a year. Well, I think you keep him a year. I think you almost have to, especially when you get into these last points. Two freshmen started at inside linebacker, at middle linebacker. Two freshmen started at this position when neither entered fall camp projected to start at the position. That's not immaterial. Now, I talked about earlier, you could see their progression over the course of the season. Of course you could. But they're still true freshmen starting, two of them, not one, two of them, starting at the middle linebacker position, Shane Lee and Christian Harris. Now, think about this, right? True freshmen are targets. We saw that against Duke when David Cutcliffe ran. He started the game with the triple option and then went to passing to the tight end over the middle. We saw passes by tight end over the middle all season long because you're trying to catch these guys in conflict. And they've not played snaps at this level. Now, over the course of the season, they accrued snaps. But they've this is on-the-job training that they're experiencing. Let's also think about this. And I got into it. I was trying to have a nice, friendly, hey, let's talk football conversation with someone in a chat room. And <laughs> I should have known better. Uh, but, you know, it's one of those things. You can't, you can't eat your cake and have it too. You can't, on one hand, say, we're the SEC, the toughest conference in the world, in the land, right? The toughest college football conference there is. We are the SEC. We're better than everybody. And we're Alabama, so we're on top of that heap. We're one of the best programs in college football. We play at the highest level. Oh, but a pair of freshmen can come in fresh out of high school and we shouldn't have a drop in dominance. Well, how do those two things coexist? How can you be the best of the best of the best of the best, but just bring in a college freshman, bring in a high school player, and we won't drop talent? You won't notice a drop off. Well, that's just not true. Those, the world doesn't spin that way, that where, where both of those get to, get to be true. I'm a big proponent of two things being true at once when you think through, but you can't, but there are some specific things that, that can't be true. It can't be night and day at the same time. You can't be the top of the best of the best and, and bring in a college fresh and bring in a freshman and they're going to compete and excel. Now there's exceptions, but they're the exceptions that prove the rule. CJ Mosley and Ronaldo, uh, Ronaldo McClain came in as freshmen and, and dominated. But that's two, two over the last several years. Uh, think of players like, hell, Dylan Moses himself. Uh, a year ago, we wanted him to, to get some reps in the podunk game at middle linebacker, calling the plays so he'd be ready against the Auburn game. Remember that? Uh, Reggie Raglan, Rashawn Evans, Reuben Foster all needed time. None of them started at middle linebacker as true freshmen. None of them did. Uh, Mosley and McLean did, but none of the other guys did. Another uh, of the other four and three play in the NFL, and certainly Dylan Moses will. So those are things to, to keep in mind. Um, let's see. Uh, if we think about not just two freshmen starting at inside linebacker, but there were five and six starters, um, and, and it was five and six depending upon the alignment of the defense. Are we starting in a, in a dime? Are we starting in a nickel? Are we starting in base? But uh, if you add Shane Lee, Christian Harris, Justin Boyby, Brian Young, DJ Dale, Jordan Battle, uh, and I think DeMarco Hellams uh, got a start uh, late in the season. 
all those guys are true freshmen. So the same argument, true freshmen, true freshmen, true freshmen. You play 11 defenders, and uh, if five of them are starting true freshmen, um, I mean, you're going to see some drop-off there. Uh, I've heard this attributed to multiple coaches, uh, Bryant being one, but, uh, you know, you're going to lose a game for every freshman who plays. Well, okay, <laughs> we started five. Uh, <laughs> so keep that in mind. Uh, now think about this. I think this is my sixth point uh, on the on this topic, fifth or sixth, whatever it is. If you take into account injuries, defections, defections of players going to other teams, uh, transferring out, quitting, uh, as well as defections, uh, people leaving in, in early to the NFL, and uh, and I hate the word bust, so I'm going to say maybe players that are a little bit underperforming. If you look at the number of players that fall into that category, injuries, defections, NFL, and underperformers, you look at those four categories, I'll give you 12 players, eight are, themselves are linebackers, that all were eligible or would have been eligible to play on the 2000. 19 team. Now, you take the 2019 team and you add in these players, healthy, ready to contribute to the full season, and you just tell me if you don't think the defense is better. You just tell me if if that would not have allowed these two freshmen at the position to perform better. Dylan Moses, Joshua McMillan, obviously those were the two starters uh, before they went down in fall camp. LeBron Ray, I know he's a defensive end, but he's uh, in-the-box uh, front eight player. Uh, transfers. Hmm. Uh, Vandarius Cowan, Antonio Aflano, Iyebi Anoma. Certainly middle linebacker, uh, linebackers and in-the-box players that would bolster up true freshmen at linebacker, or they would have allowed the true freshmen not have to play as many starts. Now, look at players who are on the existing team who haven't performed at levels that we would have projected them to. Doesn't mean they won't be, they they won't have great seasons next year, but when you think about these are the guys who should have been playing ahead of Christian and Shane. But Christian and Shane outplayed these guys. Jalen Moody, Markel Benton, Ali Keho, and Ben Davis. Now let's look at two players who left early to the NFL. They were fourth, fifth, sixth round draft picks. And so they definitely should have come back, been on this year's team, contributing to this year's team. And then they would have been higher draft picks next year. Mac Wilson and Deontay, uh, Deontay Thompson. Mac Wilson is a middle linebacker. And Deontay Thompson, while he's a safety, there's not a defense that Deontay Thompson plays for that's not improved with him being on the field. And so you take all of those players and have them an opportunity to play on this year's staff, on this year's team, and, 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 and develop in a way that maybe some of them have not yet developed. And tell me that this defense isn't better. Uh, and so when I take all of this information, I'm getting ahead of myself in terms of conclusions. When you take all of this information and you're willing to intentionally on purpose, factor it into a thought process. Here's the conclusions I come up with, okay? They may not be the same conclusions that you come to, but if you factor this information into your thought-making process, which some people aren't because it's not fun. I don't want to think. I want to knee-jerk. But if you're willing to think, I mean, hell, isn't it more fun when, we, when we're when we smart football fans? If we're willing to think about this, 
And there's two conclusions that, that I come to that are just almost inescapable. One, you cannot singularly blame Pete Golden. Now, Pete Golden may not be a good coach. He may be a good coach, right? Either of those. You pick your side on that one. But you cannot singularly, in the face of all of this information, you cannot singularly blame Pete Golden for Alabama not winning a title in 2019. You just can't. There's, there's too much evidence to the contrary. And the second, again, Pete Golden may be a good coach. He may not. He may end up not being such a good coach. But you cannot argue with these points that the defense won't get better next year. You can't argue that his on-the-job training, his second year of progress and development, the recovery of, of such significant players from injury, the development, the continued development of players that are on the roster and being added to the roster, that that the defense won't be better next year. It's not a conclusion that you can draw based on the face of the evidence. And if you want to throw, and if you want to just say, he just, Pete Golden just really sucks, and I just really don't like him, and I don't think he's going to pro- progress at all, I'm going to throw three names at you. Joe Kynes, and again, we this was in a bonus Pete Golden show back in the fall. Uh, Joe Kynes and Carl Tor- Torbush were two defensive coordinators that the, that Alabama fans wanted to ride out on a rail after their first season. After their second season, there were people who suggested that both of these coaches, Joe Kynes, even, yes, Joe Kynes, Joe Kynes and Carl, Tarbo- uh, Carl Torbush should be head coaches the next season. You remember when Shula left, there was discussion, let's just, Joe Kynes, this, let's just let Joe Kynes be the, for this season. We'll get our feet back under us, and then we'll figure out who's the coach next time after that. I don't know. Maybe I'm, maybe Joe Kynes was another era. Uh, the point being, there was a push for Joe Kynes to be at least an interim head coach, uh, not just for the bowl game, because I think he was for the bowl game, but for, but extended into the next season. And Carl Torbush, who's the Burt Reynolds of, of college coaches, there was a push when Fran left to make Carl Torbush the head coach at Alabama. One year removed from ride him out on a rail. And so <laughs> we've seen this trend twice before. Do we not think that Pete can evolve and grow and become a decent head coach? It's just on the evidence of coaching alone, much less all of the other factors that, that we've talked through. We'll also talk about Sark. Uh, I said I talk, I'd give you three coaches, so I'm going to mention Sark again. Remember, a lot of Alabama fans were really pissed off when Sark came back to be offensive coordinator. And now, if you were to poll fans who your two, three, four potential next head coaches, you'd hear Sark's name a lot. And so it's the evolution of thought when people, when you take people who aren't willing to look for additional information, and they're, and they're confronted with it. They're confront. you know, let's get rid of these coaches because we hate them and we don't like them. Oh, oh, actually this season, the season where we sit today that hasn't yet transpired, but it's going to transpire. For, so a year from now, we have this new information where, damn, maybe the defense is really good. Gosh, maybe Pete Golden isn't as bad as I thought. Maybe Carl Torbush isn't as bad as I thought. Maybe Sark 
Maybe he's a really good guy because he helped us get Bryce Young. Maybe with more information, we make better decisions, right? And maybe some of that information we can seek out right now. I'm not trying to make this a philosophical thing, so I'll just get over this. But when you look for this information, I'm worked up on this. When you look at this information that's readily available, who, who said, who, oh, somebody had a quote. I don't know where I get all these quotes. Someone had a quote that said, if whether you can read, you know, whether you can't read, you're unable to read, you're illiterate, whether you can't read or you just choose not to read, it's the same thing, right? And so whether you don't know, you're ignorant to all of these facts or you choose not to consider these facts in your decision, you're equally as ignorant, right? And so that's why I am on Pete Golden. Now, I put this in, a, in the bonus um, in the bonus content. No one's really taking me up for this, uh, taking me up on this yet. So I'm going to put it out for the, the larger the larger group, the larger population. I am so uh, bullish on Pete Golding being considered an improved coach. Pete Golding may be being considered a candidate uh, that this this time next year we will not want him to leave. Oh boy, this Pete Golden is flipped on a light switch. Oh, Pete Golden, this he's a hero now. That we will think as a fan base, if you don't like him and you have reason not to not to like him, then I want to hear because I want I want to learn from that perspective. But on the whole, he's going to be perceived a much better coach a year from now than he is now. I just think I I don't know how you can think differently. But if you do think differently, I want to make a bet. Um, I want to just take five or eight people. I can't bet everyone and <laughs> I can't afford that. Uh, but I, I, I want to bet a nice bottle of, of alcohol, a nice brown bottle with, uh, with someone that, uh, I think pizza, pizza, a, a better coach that <laughs> it'll sound funny to say, loud. I think he's a better coach a year from now than he is today. And, and I think the play on the field, the team, uh, I think all of that will demonstrate that. And uh, if we get a couple of folks that are willing to take a bet with me on that, you know, let's let's a year from now, let's get on the podcast uh, all together and uh, let's talk it through and uh, let's let's see uh, where that nets out. But uh, again, I don't think Pete Golding's the scapegoat you're looking for. I definitely think that uh, in, in the face of all of this information, there's a tremendous outstanding opportunity for him to be viewed uh, as a much more uh, successful coach a year from now than he is now. Now, wow. This is part one, and it has gone uh, significantly longer than I wanted it to. Uh, I thought this might be, I've got 10 topics and I've only done three, uh, but I thought from a content standpoint, this might be sort of a halfway point. We'll see. We'll record these others. Uh, the other one might be a little, the uh, second one might be a little shorter, but this has been a lot of quality content. I think the game, the coaching staff, the strength and conditioning, uh, <laughs> Pete Golding conversation, this is a lot of fun stuff. And this is the stuff that I've just had bottled up within me wanting to get out and not able to schedule a podcast and just eventually uh, just with the, the uh, both Tom and I and eventually just saying, hell, I got to talk to somebody about this. And so let's get it. Uh, let's get it going. And uh, here we are. So I'm going to wrap this one and uh, come back with part two, uh, probably here in a couple days. And uh, we'll go from there. Uh, this has been another edition of the Alabama football podcast. Roll Tide. Thanks for listening to the Alabama football podcast. We love that you're tuned in and hope that you enjoyed the show. We encourage you to reach out and let us know what you like, where we can improve, or just to shout out a roll tide. We are where you are. iTunes, Facebook, Twitter, email newsletters, t-shirts, free roster downloads, 
and of course, on the web at alabamafootballpodcast.com. Check us out where you'll find Catch those springtime vibes all over Arizona. Break out of the winter blues by hitting the water at one of our lake and river parks. Take a hike among the wildflowers. Just make sure to stay on the trails and leave the flowers for the bees. Discover Arizona's best kept secret and visit azstateparks.com slash amazing to start your springtime adventure.